This is Fresh Ed. I'm Will Brem. Lobbyists are paid to influence government officials. They often operate behind closed doors, hidden from public view. In the education sector, for-profit companies rely on the work of lobbyists to promote commercial interests in public policy making, from privately operated public schools to the use of education technology inside classrooms. My guest today, author, lobbyist, and activist, Tamazin Cave, shines a light on commercial lobbyists in Britain's education sector. A director of Spinwatch and leader of the Alliance for Lobbying Transparency, Cave talks about her new book, co-authored with Andy Rowell, entitled A Quiet World, Lobbying, Crony Capitalism, and Broken Politics in Britain, which was published in 2014 by Random House. Cave reveals the techniques used by successful lobbyists and discusses the revolving door among government office, lobby firms, and the media. She calls for transparency in lobbying and reveals how she thinks like a lobbyist. Tamazin Cave, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi. Uh, in your new or relatively new co-authored book, you focus on lobbyists and their influence on government officials. How did you get involved in the subject of lobbyists and in the quiet world of lobbying, as you say? Um, yes, I, uh, I'm a researcher and a writer, and I actually work for a not-for-profit organization, a small one in the UK called Spinwatch, which does what it says on the tin, in that we um, look at the public relations and commercial lobbying industries um, in the UK mainly. And so within that context, I have researched a number of sectors um, um, of Education is one. So looking at the mainly private sector organisations that are trying to influence government decisions. I should also say that I am uh, myself a lobbyist um, in that I, as part of my work with Spinwatch, have been trying to get transparency regulations in the UK for lobbyists. So like the ones that they have in the States and in Canada so that the public can see who is lobbying whom about what. So we have, we can have some sort of debate and dialogue about um, uh, the influence industry in the UK. And actually within the context of that campaign, I should say, um, I've, I mean, effectively, I've been lobbying against the commercial lobbying industry because they're not, they're not terribly keen on being that transparent. Um, and and so I've seen kind of firsthand some of the tools and tactics um, that they use uh, in order to sway government, um, and then uh, it, particularly around this uh, register of lobbyists that I've been lobbying for in the UK. So I've had kind of firsthand experience of them. Right, and so to dig into this uh, firsthand experience and some of the tactics that lobbyists use, let's focus on one of the chapters uh that you write about on education, which The Guardian, I, I read recently, praised actually as one of the best chapters in the book. Um, maybe to, to jump into this, the, the best way is to use an example of Michael Gove. Um, can you explain who he is and, and his relationship to lobbyists? Yeah, so Michael Gove was um, Secretary of State for Education um, in the UK between 2010 and 2014. So he was, um, uh, he, they came in, it was a coalition government, he's a conservative politician, um, but it, he was part of a coalition government that, that um, came to power in 2010. And with it, um, uh, he introduced um, wide-ranging 
uh, reforms to the education system here, um, notably uh, the expansion of um, a, a quasi-schools market. So more independent schools and our equivalent of charter schools, which are free schools, um, known as free schools in the UK. So he's kind of, he is or was um, the UK's leading education reformer. He's a former journalist, actually, um, and uh, very well connected to um, uh, networks of think tanks um, and lobbyists. So he was chair of um, one of the UK's leading think tanks, which is called the Policy Exchange. Um, it's been a very, very vocal champion for this um, market in schools. Um, it promotes, uh, for example, um, for-profit making schools. Um, and it's and it's really helped to kind of shape the climate of reform in the UK. Um, and you can see, actually, as part of this network, so Michael Gove is now in the department, or was at the time, in the Department for Education, but you can see the, the movement of personnel between the, the policy exchange, which kind of acted like a, a bit of a feeder school for Michael Gove's department. So a lot of people moving from the policy exchange to the Department for Education. Um, and so you see this kind of blurring of the lines between... Um, the commercial lobbying industry, and I would definitely include think tanks in that, um, and uh, policymakers. Yeah, so this re- revolving door, in a, in a sense. Um, yeah, my, Gove's view on technology and in education seems to have changed, and that, that's uh, an argument you kind of make. And how did that change come about? Who was involved? How, what were the lobby efforts that that occurred? Yeah, I think I think this is actually a presentational issue rather than a, a, a kind of a a, a moment mm. um, of awakening that Michael Gove had. Certainly, when he came in, um, he was portrayed very deliberately in a particular way. So he was, I suppose, reassuringly conservative and traditional. Um, there was a spate of stories um, that defined who Gove was. It was about you know, school discipline. It was about um, pupils wearing blazers and ties, about learning Latin. We had this um, initiative where every school in the country was going to be sent to St. James Bible, um, inscribed in gold from the Secretary of State, Michael Gove. You know, it was all about um, creating an impression that he was, yeah, this this very conservative traditional uh, figure that was that was all about standards and tradition. Um, and then, uh, very quietly, very subtly, um, other messages um, were brought in. Uh, almost a, sort of eighteen months, a couple of years later, where we see Michael Gove talking a lot more about education technology. And actually, it's interesting to contrast his words here to. Um, him talking about it in um, in the states. There's a lot of movement. I mean, he goes to he goes to the states, or he used to go to the states a lot to conferences and um, meetings with education reformers there. So there was a point where he uh, was a keynote speaker at Jeb Bush's um, Foundation for Excellence in Education. Um, and he talks much more um, uh, deliberately and um, enthusiastically about ed tech there and about what he was asked about what the UK could do to get more ed tech, more computers into schools. Um, and he started talking about how you can introduce um, computer science and coding into the curriculum and things, which is one of the things he, he did. So it's not so much that he had this kind of conversion, but more that it was a presentational thing because it's, it was actually interesting during... 
um, when we had the Leveson inquiry into um, phone hacking, uh, Michael Gove was asked about his relationship with Rupert Murdoch, for example. And he, I mean, we know that Murdoch is invested in education technology, or was at the time with um, Amplify. And Gove talked quite openly about how he'd spoken with um, Murdoch about um, the, how education was going to change through technology. Um, conversations he'd also had with Microsoft and Pearson and stuff. So there's obviously um, uh, discussions being had, but but the public face of Michael Gove was a, a very traditional conservative figure. Um, it's interesting actually just to look at the the way that the whole of the education reform agenda has been presented in the UK, and certainly contrasted with what happened in. Um, in the sector of health, we have had, um, I don't know if you'll be aware, but um, the in 2010, the government introduced wide-ranging reforms to the uh, National Health Service in the UK. Um, and the way that it was done was with this very big, dramatic piece of legislation. Um, and it came as a shock to the public. Um, they were uh, very um, market-driven reforms. Uh, it was about privatising large uh, parts of the NHS um, and there was a kind of a gung-ho attitude, we're going to do this, we're going to push this through um, and they came up against so much opposition, they had to pause the legislation because of all the protests in the street and the like and the the health secretary who drove that through was heavily criticised and eventually lost his job because of the way he'd managed the process. Now Gove, um, by contrast was pushing through equally radical um, market reforms, but he was praised because he did it in such a way as not to alert the public. So immediately I'm curious, these are the same policy agendas essentially, but they are being presented in very, very different ways. So I think I think certainly the the um, the way that Ghost Department um, and the government has handled these education reforms has been very um, very clever. Right, and and um you talk about how lobbyists typically, their goal is to influence uh, government officials by potentially selling them on, on a particular policy solution. Um, but in, in education, in the reforms in education in the UK, for instance, you say it's more about the lobbyists having shared interests with certain government officials. Can you talk a little bit about those shared interests and, and how they then manifest in policy and how they met the interests of lobbyists? Yeah, I think I think this is something that um, often gets um, uh, uh, confused. Or very often we see lob lobbyists as um, parasitic to the, our political system. So they're or, or you know they're on the outside pushing in. And it's absolutely crucial to remember that lobbyists are insiders and they are part, very much embedded within our political system in the UK um, and uh, as elsewhere. Um, and more than that, they actually effectively subsidise it. They're there with the research. They're there with the um, people from, you know, they can mobilise people to support policies. They can provide funding and um, personnel to push particular agendas. They can do all sorts of things to support politicians' um, Aims. So, the first thing to think is is that lobbyists are are, are inside the system; they're not outside pushing in. Um, and the second thing to to realise is is 
I mean, certainly in the UK, um, and I, I, I know this more in health than I do in education, but um, we've seen a kind of a hollowing out of the state and a replacement um that replacing that expertise with um, commercial interests, so whether that's the big consultancy firms or um, uh, companies themselves, but certainly um, there is a, uh, a shared agenda now between, um, I'd say, the senior levels uh, of um, senior officials and politicians um, and corporate interests. Um, and it, so there's a kind of elite, an elite thinking uh, that they... They very much all think the same. They think very differently often from the from the general public, but there is a um, certainly a, an elite level of decision makers that that whose views are indistinguishable from those um, of the lobbyists that surround them. And this has happened for you know a number of reasons. Uh, the revolving door you mentioned before it plays a massive part in this. So you know you see the movement of personnel in and out of government. And one minute they'll be writing the policy, um, and and the next minute they'll be implementing it, but within a corporate environment. So there's a um, a guy that I could mention in um, in the health sector who, you know, he he, he was writing the policy. Uh, he then went to work for KPMG, and it was whilst he was working for KPMG, he felt he could say quite openly in a in a well, it was a a forum of of uh, private equity investors that the. NHS had be shown no mercy and that it was going to move from a, um, a state provider of care to a, a state insurer. I mean, these are radical, radical things to say, but he felt that that was okay to say that within that environment. It was only when that became public that it that it, they realised that actually this is scandalous to the public. So there is this kind of a comfort level within, within elite decision making where they, yeah, they they generally think the same. So there is no persuading that needs to happen. And you see that as much in education as you do in other sectors like health. Right. And so can, can you talk more about some of the specific strategies lobbyists use to um, maybe not only win over the elite uh, opinion makers, but also more of the grassroots level, you know, the, the public? How do they get their views changed by lobbyists? Yeah, there's, um, I mean, there's a, there's a vast number of ways that lobbyists do it, but you can see, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the tobacco industry, the oil industry, or the education industry, they, they, they have a, a shared, shared way of working and, and, and they borrow techniques and tactics um, from each other. Um, and the way that, I mean, some of the ways that they do it, you, you've got to think of it like inf- building influence. It's like building a bridge. You, you put certain things together, you need a bit of money, you need people with skills, and you build it. It doesn't magically happen. So you've got to think of it like that. So one of the key things that they 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 do is, um, certainly when speaking to the public, is use public relations. So this is a major part of the lobbying industry's kind of arsenal. Um, and uh, over and again, particularly in the education field, you hear them talking about the need for a compelling narrative. So you will have heard these narratives um, many, many times. They're sold to us as if, as if they're truths, but they are they are stories. They are stories that are designed to capture our attention and to persuade. Um, uh, they are not based, you know, they're not evidence based. They are they are literally just stories. So ways of selling the reform agenda. And it's, and it's making sure that the public understands why reform is necessary and why it's necessary now. So there's, there's normally a sense of urgency. In it. And there's a group of lobbyists, actually, who, who talk about these compelling ch- uh, cases for change. And they, 
you know, messages need to be rational, they need to be emotional, you need to have personal stories in there. They talk about how New York City, they talk about, um, uh, oh yes, it's it's about college and career readiness. Um, It's the same reform agenda, but the narrative is about getting kids ready for college. Brazil, they talk about extending educational opportunities to everyone. It's the same reform agenda, but that's a narrative that's sold um, that's being used to sell it. Australia, they talk about how um, uh, kids are really keen on tech, so let them use it in school. Uh, again, that's a narrative being sold to sell a particular reform agenda. So the first thing is, yeah, creating this compelling case for change because the one thing the lobbyists understand is that they need to own um, debates. Uh, what they don't want to do is argue um, on somebody else's ground. Um, and I'll just explain this a bit more. Framing is absolutely key. Um, if it, I'll give you an example. Um, if, for example, a company wants to do something and there is an environmental problem associated with it, but they don't want to have a debate about that environmental impact because it's, it's a debate they're probably going to lose. So what you want to do is shift the terms of the debate onto ground that you can win. So they might make it about jobs um, and and hope that the public ignores the conversation about um, about the environmental impact. And you're making sure that that seems like an extremist debate to have. The real debate is about jobs. Um, and they've done it in education as well. So it's all about shifting onto ground that you control the terms of the debate. So this, this framing is very, very important to lobbyists. So that's kind of one, one thing that they do. Then... I suppose the other key technique to talk about is, uh, I mean, it lies at the heart of PR, which is making sure that other people other than the corporate interest, self-interested corporation um, is is promoting these messages. Because if a corporation says, you know, we should follow this particular reform agenda, people are unlikely to believe it. What you need is you need other people to say it for you. So this is you know, it's classic third party technique. And you want credible third parties who have access to the media um, who will be able to um, shout this uh, message for you. Um, Think tanks are very, very useful um, in this guise. And there are some think tanks um, that are indistinguishable from commercial lobbying agencies. They they perform the same functions. Um, Third party lobby groups, that could be um, trade bodies or it could be... um, groups set up specifically to promote a particular agenda and we call them front groups um, in that in that um, particular instance um, and the education uh, reform movement is full of these third party activists you know there are the foot soldiers in the lobbying groups there are the sort of uh, I would call them astroturf campaigns so you have fake grassroots campaign groups um, that are presenting themselves as the voice of parents or the voice of students but they are entirely funded by companies that stand to gain financially from this particular reform agenda um, so it's, it's, it's making sure that these, these particular third parties are recognised um, it's uh, we've written a lot about it in in terms of um, it's been watching um, with regards to the the tobacco industry and it's very clear you can see where Philip Morris is funding people it's slightly harder to see particularly in the UK because um, for example the think tanks here generally tend not to say who their funders are so you can hear the messages the reform messages that are being put out but you can't trace the money back Um, uh, it's sometimes easier in the states sometimes not mm. um but it's uh yeah there's nothing there's no 
law that says they need to declare their funders. So these these um, you know three main strategies: the the narrative, setting the narrative, setting the frame, and having the third party promotion of these ideas. It, waiting for Superman, the movie uh, about DC schools, I think, um, seems to have all of those um, pieces. And and in fact, I think your research really looked at, at where the funding came from for that movie. Could you talk a little bit about Waiting for Superman and how it um, fits all of these different key lobbyists or key elements of the lobbyist movement? Yeah, I think it... I mean, Waiting for Superman was one of a number of films that was put out that had this kind of reform agenda. Um, I mean, it, and it... it I talked at the beginning about um, how lobbyists understand the need for um, both rational and um, emotional um, messages. They need to appeal to people's emotional selves. And this is something that actually um, campaigners, public interest campaigners sometimes forget. Um, so, it, I mean, it was, a, it, was, uh, it, was all, it was all designed to um, uh, pull your heartstrings. I mean, it was a very compelling film, um, emotionally and rationally. It had this urgency um, that, you know, we need change, we need change now because these kids' lives are at stake. Um, it very much drove home the message that America's public education system is failing students. I mean, that's that's kind of a blanket message across the states and across the UK. Um, what it did then is it is it it, it needed to find a bogeyman, and the bogeyman was um, what's been uh, uh, termed the blob. Um, it's a term that's used in, in the States and in the UK, which is um, this the bureaucracy of education. So the teachers' unions, the civil servants, uh, the teachers themselves, they're all standing in the way of this reform in, uh, agenda. And then, you know, here comes the jump. So that's all the problems, and then you need to present the solution. And the solution is um, freeing schools from state control and democratic oversight and, and whatnot. And and the reformers come in with their solution. Now there is a disconnect between problem solution, um, but not as it's presented in in these films. So um, it's uh, it's you know it's it's very cleverly woven together story. Um, and not without some truth. Um, there needs to be an element of truth, but it is a crafted narrative. Um, and, and film was a very, very powerful way of um, reaching a particular audience. And there was Waiting for Superman kind of a pe- appeal to the kind of policy nerds a little bit. There was another film um, which was called Won't Back Down, which was a, um, a fiction film. Um, and that was designed to appeal to the, quote, folks on the couch, you know, so the sort of more general public. But it was exactly the same message. So, um, you know, I mean, it, film is a very, very powerful medium. Why try and get to people just through uh, newspapers, you know, or TV or whatever? Let's use the movies. Let's take a break. Have you enjoyed the shows on educational privatization? Have questions or opinions you want to share? Join us for a special webinar on November 17th at 7 p.m. GMT. Frank Adamson, Chris Lubienski, and Tamazin Cabe will join us online to discuss their research on educational privatization and commercial lobbyists in more depth and answer your questions. Space is limited to the first 100 guests, so please RSVP by sending an email to gesig.ciesgmail.com. 
The webinar is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society, with support from Drexel University's Global and International Education Program. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Tamazin Cave, co-author of A Quiet World, Lobbying, Crony Capitalism, and Broken Politics in Britain. Earlier, you, you said that um, the media plays a big role in lobbyist uh, efforts, and you mentioned uh, Rupert Murdoch and his interest in education and technology. Could you explain that a little bit more and, and perhaps some of the the issues that arise when the media is so involved in lobbying for particular uh, policies? Yeah, so um, it won't come as news to anybody that um, people like Rupert Murdoch have invested in education technology, as have many other um, media groups uh, that are looking for ways of generating revenue outside of newspapers, um, uh, which are seeing declining um, profits. So they've, they, they've, uh, they have an interest in promoting this particular agenda. Um, and certainly we see it through the Murdoch press. Um, he owns the Sunday Times here and has been a champion of education technology. Um, and it's um, given voice to people like Joel Klein, who works for um, Murdoch. So it's... And, they, and they've been able to talk about, you know, this wonderful new future um, presented by technology um, in teaching. Um, the problem is, is when we rely on, for example, the mainstream media um, f as a public forum for debate. Um, and one of the things that surprised me uh, enormously um, in the UK is about how little debate we're having about this, particularly um, with regards to education technology. I've been to... A number of um, uh, conferences where uh, the, it, you've had, you know, a couple of hundred people um, from the states and, and the UK and elsewhere, investors. These are investors in education, and they have been, you know, the the the, the enthusiasm for education technology, how it's going to radically change um, teaching, how it's going to cut costs in education, how it is the solution to all our woes, um, and the sheer amount of money going in going into education technology is absolutely astonishing. So there is one conversation being had amongst a very very small elite. Um, uh, network of people, um, and I'd seen none of it filtering down into um, public debate. So um, the 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 conversations that have been had around education in the UK have been very very limited, and I think this is actually um, it's it's fairly deliberate. For example, when Gave came in, we did have a debate about education, but it was about the content of the history curriculum. Now that is important, and I'm sure it's very important to some people, but it it wasn't the debate that was being had elsewhere. So it was a very heated debate in the press, and there were, you know, reams and reams of column inches, you know, discussing whether we should teach this or teach that, uh, and and it was, you know, it had all the sort of um, elements of a of a very controversial, um, you know, exciting debate. But it it was very different from the debate that was being that I was seeing when I was going to these conferences about, you know the money being invested in education technology and how that was going to radically, I mean, really radically change education. So I think there is a problem when when the debates is left to um, organisations that had a vested interest in not discussing it in public. Um, and, uh, I mean, one of the reasons um, uh, I, I think we should talk about lobbyists more in this is because 
they have uh, they are very good at controlling um, what is seen in our papers. So they push stories in, but they also spend half of their time keeping stories out of the press. Um, and uh, you know, I mean that 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 is their job. So um, I I I think it is very problematic. I'd like to switch um, focus just quickly uh, to methods. Your name is attached to Spinwatch, which is calling for um, transparency in the lobbyist industry. And you've written a book kind of exposing a lot of some of the perhaps unknown tactics that lobbyists use. How difficult is it for you to research lobbyists now? Um, well, it's, it's not a, it's not an industry that that um, that likes exposure. Put it like that. I mean, the, the, you know, there's the old truism in that the best PR is that which goes unnoticed. Um, and and as soon as you start making visible um, some of this stuff, uh, it loses a lot of its power. So, um, what are your what are some of your techniques to approach this this industry that likes to be opaque? Well, I think I think the the most fundamental thing is that you've got to think like a lobbyist. I mean, you've got you've got to think if you wanted to. Um, there's a particular policy agenda you want you want to push. You want to, the government to take a particular action. How are you going to get the government to do that? Um, and it might be that you just need to take the minister out for dinner and um, have a quiet word, and and that is sufficient to get the policy change that you want. Um, more likely in um, within the context of these big reform agendas, you are going to have to change the climate of debate. Um, and so you're going to see lots of PR activity. Um, you're going to see lots of activity from think tanks. Uh, you're going to see the setting up of front groups. You're going to see funding of big, um, uh, you know, campaigns that repeat the same message again and again and again. And so it's knowing what to look out for. So starting by thinking like a lobbyist, and then you start, you, you start to notice kind of... Um, you, you start to notice a campaign. Um, there was, I'll give you an example. Um, there's been a massive push to get kids coding. Um, and it's, it's not just been in the UK, it's been everywhere. I mean, it is a, it's a huge PR effort to get kids into coding. Um, and I suppose it kicked off in the UK um, with a speech that um, Eric Schmidt gave. Um, and it was about how we needed to reform our, our education system in the UK and we needed to do it urgently because we were throwing away this computer heritage. This um, And he sort of harked back to the Victorian era and to the Lions tea shop that had the first commercial computer. And, you know, it was all about nostalgia for, you know, this once great Britain and all this kind of stuff. And the solution was you need to teach kids coding. Um, and it was And it was, I mean, widely covered in the press that this is absolutely what we needed to do. Um, and then you sort of fast forward two years, and I noticed um, Google was saying very much the same thing in Australia, but it was it was couched in very different terms. It was it was a, it was the same message, which is you need to teach kids to code, but it was couched in the language of um, what are you going to do when the mining money runs out? So they were sort of tapping into this fear that the Australians have of you know that what, where's where where's their economy going to be in the future. What are, what are their industries going to be? You need to teach kids to code um, and it'll be technology. That, that, that's the future. Now, the, the, it was the same message but, but couched in very different terms. 
I noticed, and I mean, this is obviously pure coincidence, that both speeches coincided with the launch of Google's Chromebook for schools. Now, I mean, that's that's purely coincidental, but you can see how this public relations sort of this campaign was um, sort of this wave of kind of teacher kids to code was kind of moving around the world. Um, But it was furthering the commercial interests of, of particular corporations. And, and once you know what you're looking for, then you start to see it. Right. And what about access to, um, say, lobbyists or policymakers? Is it, is it difficult to get access to do just regular old interviews with them? Um, it, it would, I suppose you'd have to sort of question the value of what, how, how valuable would it be to talk to a politician about this. Um, uh, given that there is a very, very carefully crafted um, uh, um, message being um, put out there. Um, I find it, I mean, what what is uh, useful is is reading the conversations between lobbyists and uh, politicians that you can, can sometimes access through freedom of information law. Um, that has proved useful and you can see the kind of closeness um, of the relationships. You can you can um, hear the tone of the conversation about, uh, you know, these are personal social relationships a lot of the time. So you get a kind of a feel for, um, for how the, the kind of relationship between some lobbyists and politicians. Um, I'd say it, with the Department of Education, it was quite difficult. Um, Michael Gove, uh, was caught doing a Hillary Clinton and using a private email address, um, and certainly uh, it's it's quite guarded about the kind of information that it releases. So it's quite difficult. And what about surprises? What have been some of the biggest surprises that you've experienced along your uh, your research into different industries in the lobbyist movement? Um. I think the surprise, I mean, I mentioned it before, but the surprise has been really how little public debate there is, given that you have politicians within closed forums talking about, you know, the massive fundamental changes that are going to happen in education. You hear education investors talking about how this is a, you know, how over many trillion dollar uh, industry globally. Um, uh, I heard one the other day saying, you know, there's enough for everybody. Let's all make hay, you know, um, and they're talking about it in those terms. And yet there's absolutely no or very, very little public debate um, about the um, so the privatization of education, the commercialization of education. Um, uh, and I, I, I suppose that's what shocked me the most. Tamizen Cave, thanks for joining Fresh Ed. Tamazin Cave is a director of Spinwatch and leads the Alliance for Lobbying Transparency campaign. She is co-author of A Quiet World, Lobbying, Crony Capitalism, and Broken Politics in Britain. Next week, I'll speak with Professor Tavis Jules about educational regionalization in the Caribbean. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. If you want to highlight your research on Fresh Ed or give us feedback on the show, please email us at gesig.cies at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Like what you heard on the show today? 
please be sure to review and subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.